0: Uh, you were in what? Age, I don't even remember what age groups. If you go to a class normally, go with Miss Lizzie. She's teaching today. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Still asleep, everybody but one. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm excited to be here. Um, I, you know, I was I shared with the team this morning. Um, I, I read a, a devotional pretty regularly uh, by Tozer on leadership, and he was describing kind of the extremes of uh, incredibly liturgical services versus those that are not. Um, but but saying that in either case what's most important uh, to God as an authentic worshiper, somebody who is engaged in what they're doing. And man, I so appreciate our team and their engagement with the Father. It's it's so evident every Sunday morning when they lead worship. So super, super thankful for them. Uh, today we're gonna we're gonna take our time or take some time to kind of pause and reflect on what we've learned so far. You know, we've spent the last three weeks going through this temptation narrative in Luke chapter four, and and I wanted us to to just have one more Sunday to kind of gnaw on that just a little bit. I felt like there were some things that the Lord wanted me to pull out of that that we didn't get to talk about in the last three messages. I want to remind us that our stated goal in this study, uh, as we're going through the book of Luke, is to look at the person and the mission of Jesus. We want to know who he is and what he's about, what's important to him, so that we can know him and then in return we can make him known to the people around us and before we move into this next major section of luke's gospel where we get into the the nitty-gritty part of the ministry uh particularly in galilee that's going to re- lead us through chapter nine i wanted us to to just kind of think about what we've learned about about god what we've learned about jesus what we've learned about the holy spirit and if we're going to melt this whole thing down this whole gospel story in just a few phrases it would be something like you know in the beginning god created man to live in this world and to live with god but man failed at being what God created him to be through his disobedience. And so God put a plan into motion to show the world who he was by making these covenants with Israel, his chosen people, to reveal himself to the world through the Israelites. But Israel failed in the same way that Adam and Eve failed, but God was going to send someone. He made this promise that he's going to send someone into the world that would not fail. And so we spent... A lot of time in the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke looking at and thinking about the birth narrative of Jesus and all that God did to show that Jesus was this promised Messiah, this one that that all of the world had been looking for since the time of Adam and Eve. This portion of Luke ends in chapter 3 when we see Jesus baptized and it says that the Holy Spirit uh, descends on him like a dove and God announces this, this man, this Jesus, is my son with him I am well pleased. And then Jesus is led immediately into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to engage in this ultimate battle, this showdown with, with, with the devil. And, and he's doing all this to, to bring our minds back to what happened with Adam and Eve and what happened with Israel, this failure that happens over and over and again, and to prove once and for all that he is the Messiah by overcoming these these temptations uh, i 've shared with you guys that as we 've been kind of preaching through this, Matt Whitman um, podcaster that I listen to on the regular, went through the book of Matthew um, years ago and As he was going through this section of temptation in the book of Matthew, he keeps pointing us back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and that's something that we looked at, uh, I think that was last year when we did the Hebrew study. But if you look at that, this is one that we're all familiar with, but it says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Matt points out that as we're looking at these temptations, we know that Jesus, because we've already been through these, every time he's tempted, where does he go? He goes back to Scripture, right? Because Scripture is living and active, and it cuts right down to the meat of what is going on. And for us, as we are dealing with temptation, we need to do the same thing. God has given us his word, this story of who we are, so that we can know him. And by knowing him, we come to know who we are as we're going through that process. God wants us to see the struggles made by past generations. That's why they're recorded so that we can learn from those things, right? Jesus keeps pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want us to read verses 1 through 3 again this morning. Moses, remember, he is is laying all this out before Israel, before they go into the promised land. He says, "This this is the command. The statues and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Okay, so God's telling you this so that as you go in and possess this land that I promised you, you will, you will know what to do. He says, do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, and so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel. And be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So so God is setting Israel up to succeed by saying, follow my commands. I am doing all of this so that you can have this promise that I have given you. But, But we know the story, right? Israel fails, okay? I want us to see today, and this is point number one, that as we are struggling with temptation... Our battle plan for fighting temptation is oneness with God. So how do we do that? How do we achieve oneness with God? We use the word abide here a lot, right? And What does it mean to abide? We abide, we spend time, we are part of who God is by obeying his commands. As he speaks into our life, we do the things that he says, and we get to see something new about who God is. Mickey shared testimony about that with her brother this morning. He called and said, I'm in a a bad spot. What do I do? God spoke through Mickey to do this. He did it. It was resolved immediately. He got to learn something new about who God is. That's what it means to abide. That's what God is calling Israel to do. As you face trouble, as you face struggles, come to me with that. Ask me what to do. I will tell you. Disobedience is what led to the mess of sin. And it is through Jesus' obedience that we get to experience salvation. I want you to to just think about that for a moment. All of man's history has been nothing but disobedience. And the result of that disobedience is messiness and sin and suffering. And one man was able to be completely obedient. And through that one man, through that act of obedience, we get salvation. We're going to talk about what that means more in a little bit. But each time Jesus is tempted, he points back to scripture, specifically to Deuteronomy, to the following passages in order to remind all the people of God's character. Jesus is reminding himself and the devil about who God is, what God has done, and what he said. Let's look, we're going to just run through these temptations real quick. I don't have them up on the screen, but you'll just be able to follow along. The first one was out of Luke chapter 4 verse 3, where the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And so Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy 8 chapter 3. He said, he humbled you by letting you go hungry, then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, so the devil is tempting him, hey, dude, I know you're hungry, you've been fasting for 40 days, just take that rock, turn it into bread, you'll be good to go. And he says, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's not about the bread. It's about God. Temptation number two, Luke chapter four, verse seven, he says, if you then will worship me, all will be yours. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He says, no, 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 Satan. I'm not worshiping you because God's been very clear about who we're to worship, him alone. Temptation number three out of Luke chapter 4, verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, 16. It says, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Messiah. And we talked about last week about Messiah and the test there, about how Israel grumbled and said, we're thirsty, you brought us out here to die, right? And God's like, no, I got you, fam. Here's some water to drink. Here's what we want us to see. Every time that Jesus is tempted, he defaults to God's word. Now, there are several ways that we can respond to this information, and this is why I wanted to go back to this today. I wanted us to take some time today to talk about it. One, we can respond with arrogance. We can think, these are not that hard. Jesus did it, therefore I can do it too. Or we can respond with total depravity and think, there's no way I can even hope to go through life and not fall into t- temptation, to not fall into sin. Or thirdly, we could respond with honesty and think, I don't want to fall in temptation. But my track record so, f- track record so far is not that great. Amen. That's where we all find ourselves. And I believe that Luke, but more importantly, Jesus wants to choose option three of those. The point of Jesus' temptation is not to give us a road map so that we can try to win this fight on our own. Often when people look at this, they look and go, okay, Jesus, all right, he was tempted this way, he was tempted this way, he used these scriptures. Okay, I got the scriptures, I know the battle plan, I'm going to go do this on my own. That's not the point of this. But it's also, the point of this is not for us to walk away feeling defeated, thinking there's no way I can do this because I'm not Jesus. The point of this temptation is to show that Jesus is the promised one. It's to show us that he passed the test that every other human before him had failed. And this brings us to what God wants us to understand about him and to be able to share with him, and that's that the grace of God covers all of our sins. That's point number two for today. I want us to jump back in our examination of what God did for Israel in Egypt. Specifically, I want us to look at the very last miracle that God performed to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. If you want to flip back with me, let's go to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 6, and then 12 through 13. This is the very last miracle, and I'm, I'm condensing this down in just a few verses, but. The gist of the story is all of these miracles have happened. They've had the frogs and the locust and the hail and all of those things that God was doing to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he didn't do it. And so this last one, Moses, or God tells Moses, I want you to go have the Israelites do these things. Picking up chapter 12, verse 5, it says, You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either sheep or the goats. And you are to keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. Okay? So he tells the Israelites, go get an unblemished lamb or a goat, bring it to your house, fatten it up. And then picking up in verse 12 and 13, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So take this perfect lamb, slaughter it, take its blood, paint your doorpost with it. When, when I pass through, those that have been covered by the blood will be saved. Now we all know if you grew up in church, what is that foreshadowing towards? Jesus, right? His death on the cross. When you hear people talk about the blood of Jesus recovering them, this is what they're pointing back to. This moment was foreshadowing for what God would eventually do through Jesus to cover the sins of all people. Jesus would be that unblemished land that, whose blood would protect all people from God's holy and just wrath. The wrath that we deserve. As we think about, as we talk about this temptation moment in the life of Jesus, we're witnessing the proving grounds of the Messiah, of Jesus being able to say, I'm the guy. Not out of pride, but to say, look at my actions, look at my obedience. Through this testing, Jesus is showing that he is the unblemished, spotless lamb. And it's because of his sinlessness that we are able to be saved from God's just and holy wrath because of his blood. In his letter to the church to Rome, Paul spends a lot of time unfolding this truth to the church. And he begins by identifying the problem, which is sin. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. Paul is laying the groundwork and saying, look, through Adam and Eve sin entered the world. We're all born into it. All of us suffer from it. And all this suffering and hardship that we read about in the Old Testament, the New Testament, any historical documents leading up to today are the results of sin in a fallen world. But just like sin entered the world through one man, sin was defeated by one. Uh, Paul goes on to say in, in chapter 5, verses 15 through 20, 21, he says, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by one man's trespass the many died, How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came judgment resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. If by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace Will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sent Jesus to deal with sin once and for all, to get it, to cut it off, to be done with it. In this temptation narrative, we see Jesus facing temptation head on. And not only does he pass the test, but he also shows us that through God, we too can overcome temptation. Through God. Not in our own ability to overcome, but through Jesus, the sin has been defeated. Paul asked the question that so many who discover God's grace ask in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what should then we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And, and what is the answer to that? No. No, absolutely not. I don't, I don't remember who said it, but it's been said. That if you teach grace properly, our churches will be empty because people will realize they're not required to be here. Have y'all heard that before? If we teach grace properly, our churches will be empty because people will realize they don't have to be here anymore. The truth of grace is that it covers all of our sins. We're no longer bound by the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We're no longer bound by requirements, either spiritual or human, because Jesus has fulfilled those things. Christ met those requirements and he fulfilled those laws on our behalf. But the result of a true understanding of what grace is will draw people in. Not because they're required, but because they want to be there. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, absolutely not. How can he who died to sin still live in it? You guys have heard me say and you've heard Glenn say, if God has called you to our church, be here. If he's not called you to our church, go somewhere else. And the reason for that, the reason that we share that, the heart behind that is that God has a place for each person. And we are more interested in you being where God has called you to be than we are in you just being here. Because our goal is not for you to just try to fulfill a requirement, to not be somewhere because you're supposed to be. Grace draws us to God. And if We are doing something for any other reason. We are still living that portion of our life under the law. We're doing it because we're supposed to, because we have to, because we ought to, not because we want to. If we've truly died to sin, there will be no desire in us to continue on in sin. That's what Paul is saying. Does this mean that there will be no temptation or no failure when we're tempted? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that if we fail, it will matter to us, but there's forgiveness there. There will be remorse and there will be sorrow for our failure, but there will be forgiveness. The way we address sin in our lives, the way we deal with temptation will be different because our hearts are in a different place. Before we knew Christ, we lived life as we wanted because it didn't matter. It had no long-term implications as far as we knew or believed. But once we come to know Christ in a saving way, once we enter into that relationship with Him, no longer is that temptation or that sin attractive to us. Paul elaborates on this in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh, by sending His own Son in likeness to sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Church, Christ has done all that was required on our behalf. He's done it for us. Not only did He face the same temptations that we face, He overcame every one of them. He ultimately died taking the wrath of God on himself, so that we didn't have to endure it. This is what Paul said. What, this is why he's saying there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. In Christ means that we are in a relationship with him. That's the way I like to communicate it. To use some more evangelistic language, it means that we've been saved. We've been saved from what? From sin and death. We've been saved from ourselves. Simply put, we've heard the truth that sin entered the world through one man, affected all people, including yourself. It means that we recognize our sin and our need for redemption. It means that we believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he lived the perfect life on our behalf, that he died in our place, he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of God making a way for you to be there too. So that when we do sin, when we do fall to temptation, he offers our forgiveness and when we stand before God, Jesus will say, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. When we come to that saving knowledge of Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from him again. When we receive salvation, it changes who we are. It changes our nature. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 35, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or, na- or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Temptation's going to come. It's going to come. But as a follower of Christ, we no longer desire to succumb to temptation. It's going to be out there. And there's going to be a moment where we think about it. That is part of that weak flesh that Paul describes. But like Jesus, when that comes, we need to direct our attention back towards God and let him deal with the temptation and let, and let, instead of letting ourselves try to do it. Our flesh is weak, but God will forgive us because of what God, what Jesus has done for us. I want us to think about for a moment that there is a profound difference between knowing about God's grace and living under God's grace. I've had a lot of personal conversations with most of the people in this room, and, and most of us, for most of our lives, knew intellectually about God's grace, but we had never really experienced God's grace. Bethany was telling me this, this week about um, something that she learned um, about the circle of fists. Anybody, I know David knows about the circle of fists. Anybody else? Okay, great. I don't know about them either. We'll all flounder through this illustration, but I think it's a good one, okay? So Bethany, if you don't know... Um, um, when we met, she was, we were in college, and she was a vocal performance major. And the circle of fifths is part of musical theory. That's really the, the gist of what you need to know, okay? So when I met her, pre- vocal performance major, she started playing the piano at the age of three. So like her whole life has been about music. And when she's in college, she took a, a theory class where there taught the circle of fifths but the the professor like drew it on a dry erase board and she kind of described as it was like just memorizing facts right and so for me like as she described it it sounded a lot like math but it's not math because it's music but but anyway there's these things and you got to know if it's got one sharp here then it means this and da 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 so all of that information is in her brain right she memorized it and it's there like she can recite it out to you today and it's been 20 years since we were in college okay but it's there she was watching a TikTok the other day, and somebody uses a keyboard to explain the circle of fifths, and she said it was like the light bulb came out. I was like, oh my gosh, why did they not explain it that way in music class? All of a sudden, it makes so much sense. The information was there. She knew it. She understood it. But the application had not made its way into her life yet. It took 20 years to get there. And church, what I'm trying to say is that for many of us, we understand intellectually what it means that God has given grace to us, but the application has not made it there yet. If there is an area of your life where you sin and all you feel is guilt and sorrow and you just, I just don't want to do it again, and that's as far as it ever goes, you're missing the point. The point is, is that Jesus has already forgiven you for that. And if that overwhelming sense of hope and joy does not follow that sorrow, you're not understanding grace yet. It's the grace that God wants us to understand. The enemy wants us to fall into that same trap he's been setting since Adam and Eve and go, but did God really say? Did he really say he was going to forgive you? Did he really say that he absolutely loves you no matter what? Or is that just in your head? Because that's what he wants to do. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that, yes, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna falter. We're made of flesh. We're going to fail. But because of what Jesus did, because we are covered by his blood, he forgives us and he loves us. And if that sense of hope, that sense of joy does not overwhelm us when we bring that sin to God and confess it, we've missed out on part of the equation, the best part of the equation. There are so many people who attend church their whole lives and find themselves in this place. That information about God's grace is in their brains, but it's never made its way out into real life application. And when we read this temptation story of Jesus, it's easy for us to look at that and to see it as a road map and think to ourselves, okay, I have to do better. And the problem with that is that word I. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do. If it was about what we can do, we would be in the same boat as Adam and Eve, unable to do anything about it. We'd be in the same boat as all of Israel. Yes, our goal is to not fall to temptation. Our goal is not to sin. But if we, if we focus on what we're not supposed to do, where do we go? If you tell a, a, a toddler, don't cross that line or don't get up on this stage, where's he going? He's going on the stage, right? Because what have we made the focus? What he's not supposed to do. That's what Paul is talking about. The law was made powerless by our flesh. And if we spend all of our time focusing on the rules and what we aren't supposed to do, all of our focus is always going to be on that. But if we will put our our focus on Jesus, we will put our focus on what he has done for us and how much he loves us, this stuff over here will no longer even be a temptation anymore. Because we see the glory of who he is. When we look at the temptation of Jesus... The enemy wants to trick us into thinking that it's about doing better, about working harder. But The truth of the gospel is, is the temptation story is just showing that Jesus did what we can't do. He did it for us so that we don't have to. I wanted to take this extra time today to walk through this. Because I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that we can do it if we'll just try harder. It's the same trap the enemy's been setting since humankind was created. He feeds us part of the truth, just enough to be convincing. But then he twists it in a way that draws us away from God. God created us to know him. He gave us the ability to choose to follow him or to not. Adam Adam and Eve chose for us all, and they chose wrongly. But Jesus came, and he defeated sin and death. So that we could be redeemed. Not when we die. This is not about saving us for something later. It's about living in an experience with God today, being in a relationship with Him where we can know Him on this earth so that we can know Him and make Him known. That's why we're here. Don't waste your life trying to achieve perfection in your own power. Jesus has already fulfilled the law on your behalf. Live in the freedom that Jesus has provided for you by living in an abiding relationship with him. When that freedom is threatened by the lies of the enemy, go back to the word of God. Put your focus back on who he is. Look at the whole truth of scripture, not just the little part the enemy is trying to trick you with. When that freedom is threatened by the lies of the enemy, go back to the word. Jesus loves you. And he died So that you could live in a relationship with God, the one that he created you to have. So as we're moving through the rest of this gospel, as we're looking at the way Jesus interacted in the lives of people, how he brought healing where there was hurt, where he brought joy where there was suffering, what we need to understand is that is what Jesus came to do. And as followers of Jesus, that's what he's called us to do, to live in an abiding relationship so that when somebody calls and says, hey, I'm in a mess. Can you help me? Jesus can. Let's follow him together. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for what you did for us on the cross, that you have made a way for us to be in a perfect relationship with you. Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the people that are in this room. Lord, I ask that as we are struggling with temptation today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, the rest of our lives, Father, that you would continually appoint us back to you, that we would not spend our time focusing on the rules and the regulations, but God, to focus on the glory of who you are, that we'd be so drawn to you that the rest of the sin and the temptation that's in our lives would pale in comparison. Father, we'd be drawn only to you. Lord, as we close in worship this morning, I ask that you would give us a moment to fully focus on you, to experience your presence and your spirit in our life. Father, that it would draw us in Jesus, there are people in our lives who need to know you, who need to understand your grace. And Father, the way they're going to do that is through your church. God, I ask that you would draw us to yourself so that when it comes time to share, we have an overflow to share out of, of the experiences of the love, of the grace that you have poured out on us that we can share with others. Jesus, I ask for that. And I ask you in your name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing.